Well, good morning, church. How is everyone this morning? How about that extra hour of sleep? Can I get an amen? Right? I, I think we should do that every week, don't you? Like, let's just go ahead and add the hour of sleep. That was so great. It was awesome. Not only did I get the extra hour, I went to bed early too, so I feel way more rested this Sunday than I do most Sundays. Uh, but it also means that it's November, which indicates a new emphasis in the course of our series, and we've already highlighted that with the flags that are decorated around the room, and you've heard it mentioned that in the course of November, this is traditionally our missions month, where we think through, uh, in particular, how are we going to take these promises to all people, especially to the ends of the earth? And uh, I'm looking forward to going through this journey together with you through the course of November. It's a slight change in what we've been talking about in October. October, we were focused on the community and how is it that we take it to our neighbor. And we had the opportunity to invite some folks in over the last few weeks. We heard from Seminary Hills Park Elementary, from Gladney Adoption Center, and from Traffic 911. And these are all organizations that we're looking to contribute to in terms of engaging the community, especially through our 90 and 90 campaign. If you've been a part of this journey, you know that we're looking to, to raise and, and make some financial uh, contributions to these organizations as a blessing to the community. And part of the things that, one of the things I love about that is it's, it was genuinely just meant to bless the community. It's not like we set out and set out and found our favorite faith-based organizations. We said, look, we just want to bless those around us. And we had an opportunity to hear exactly uh, what that might look like. And so that was a really great opportunity for us. I will tell you, uh, I don't have any updated numbers today. We allowed the, the 9090 contributions to extend through the end of October, and that was Thursday, and our offices are closed on Friday and through the weekend. And so next week, I'll have those final numbers for you. But I do want you to know on the front end how grateful we are for your generosity, uh, your support, and the ways in which you have sought to bless this community. It's been really, really exciting to see. So now we shift our eyes towards a global focus, and throughout the month of November, we're also going to have some special points of emphasis, like uh, next week we have Orphan Sunday, and we'll continue to have that conversation about what does that look like for us as a church to care for the orphan and the fatherless in our midst, especially around the world. And then uh, later in the month, we're going to have a chance to look at how do we engage across cultures, what does it mean for us to be a sending church, both long-term and short-term, and so a lot of things that we'll get a chance to highlight. Today, uh, as you heard mentioned earlier, is the day of International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And so that's gonna be a conversation that we carry on today. And in order for us to, to think through how do we do this intentionally, I want us to think for a moment about the relationship between siblings, okay? Uh, brothers and sisters, sisters and sisters, brothers and brothers. That's a very important and powerful relationship because it, it proves to be a training ground for a lot of important skills in, in social awareness that you need in life, right? It's typically with a sibling that you first learn what it means to share, right? What does it mean to be kind and to watch your words and to work alongside somebody? These are all important skill sets that you have to create, and siblings often uh, serve as a great training ground for that. One of the skills that I think you also learn with siblings is empathy, Right? Empathy is a really important skill for us to learn. I mean, it's not one that we necessarily come through or come by naturally because we, we tend to be somewhat self-centered and, and somewhat self-focused. Empathy is, is kind of going against that trend. Here's the official definition of empathy. The psychological identification with or vicarious experiencing of the feelings, thoughts, or attitudes of another. Right? So this is what allows us to somehow kind of put ourselves in someone else's shoes and feel what they're feeling. It's kind of what makes you cry at movies, right? It's, it's empathy that has my wife sobbing in Toy Story 4 when Woody has to say goodbye to his friends, right? Because she's like, that would be terrible, you know? Or, or me, like I cry at movies too, especially Rudy, 
right? When he starts running onto the football field, I'm like, he works so hard, you know, and it just kind of evokes a certain emotion within you. This, this is an important skill set to foster, and, and it's one of the ones that I started thinking, well, how do we really first learn this quality of empathy? And I, I kept coming back to my sister, and, and the first example I could really think of was something that she showed me. So um, just to give you a couple of examples through this relationship, my mom was a big believer uh, when it comes to consequences and discipline that the punishment needs to fit the crime. Okay, so like if we stayed out too late past curfew, then we were grounded. If we got a speeding ticket in your car, then you couldn't drive, right? It was, it was always correlated to whatever in, uh, act of disobedience that we committed. And so when we were young, she wanted to teach us appropriate language, right? Uh, not to use bad words and to speak kindly to one another. And if we ever violated this rule, the consequence was we had our mouth washed out with soap. Okay, anybody else ever had their mouth washed? Okay, I'm not alone. Thank you for the solidarity today. Um, that was the consequence. Now, my mom really made this a point of emphasis. So it wasn't like she just kind of put a little bit of soap on a rag. Like she would get the soap on a rag, make a stick out our tongue, and then she would like scrub it, okay? And not only that, just for extra good measure, once she had washed her mouth out with soap, we had to sit there with the soapy aftertaste for at least five to 10 minutes. We couldn't go get water, okay? She was a great mom, all right? I love her, right? But it, it was effective by all means. It was a very effective uh, place of, of punishment. And so I remember, I don't remember exactly the first time and, and how old I was or anything like that, but I do remember the first time and I can't remember what I said. Obviously, it was a severe misunderstanding, right? Because I never would say something worthy of such a discipline, such a consequence. But I remember sitting there being frustrated with my sister. So I'm dealing with the soapy aftertaste and I'm somehow thinking it's her fault. And all of a sudden, she discreetly sneaks into my room and I was shocked and surprised and my heart was like overwhelmed with gratitude when I realized she had snuck in with a cup of water. And she gave me a cup of water to alleviate the soapy aftertaste. I was so floored, but I was like, I thought we were enemies. Like, what is this that you're doing for me? And I realized she could empathize because she had gone through the same consequence. Now, I told her this week that I was going to refer to this story, and she said that she probably felt more guilty than she did empathy. So I guess she had something to do with my punishment at that point. But even if it was two parts guilt and one part empathy, I'll take it. And so, so I realized this, and it became a common practice for us. Anytime we had our mouths washed out with soap, we would sneak each other a cup of water. Now, part of that was because of a shared experience, right? We understood what the other had been through, and so it created empathy. But as our, our relationship as siblings grew, and as it matured through time, we didn't always require shared experiences to demonstrate that sort of kindness and sincerity to one another. It was simply because we were brother and sister. So fast forward much later in life, just like nine years ago, I remember leaving uh, the office and I get a call from my, my mom who tells me that my sister Stephanie had just reserved a phone call with some disturbing news from their pediatrician about my nephew. He was five at the time and he ended up being just fine, but it was a pretty concerning, concerning phone call. And my mom said, can you just go check on her? You know, her, her husband's out of town. Can you just go and check on her? I was like, absolutely. And so I get in the car and I drive up to Frisco and the whole way that I'm driving, my heart is just breaking for what my sister is going through. And I see her and she answers the door and her eyes are filled with tears. I give her a hug and, and I was grieving with her, joining with her in those emotions. But let me tell you, it was not a shared experience. I didn't have children at that time. I didn't know what it was like to receive that sort of phone call, but empathy was still possible because we were brother and sister. And there's something incredibly powerful about that. And so when we start a conversation today 
about the persecuted church. I think we have to be pretty honest with each other to say, we don't really know what it's like in this context to experience persecution. That is not really a shared experience that we can draw from, but my hope is that as we have this discussion today, it still awakens empathy within our hearts and within our souls because they are brothers and sisters in every sense of the word. And we need to join with them. My hope is that we are able to stand shoulder to shoulder and join our song to theirs as we remember them today. So in order for us to do that, we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to continue to move throughout the book of Acts. Now, if you were with us through the month of October, you know that we really kind of camped out in chapter 4. But now we're going to light speed ahead a couple of chapters. And so before we read this passage today, let me just give you a couple of important summarizations of chapters 5, 6, and 7 that to me serve as pretty important context for what we're going to read today. So at the end of chapter 4, you have this summary statement that once again highlights the radical generosity of the early church. And so when chapter 5 begins, there's kind of an elaboration on this generosity with a very disturbing story of Ananias and Sapphira, who, who also sell their property and bring uh, the money to the, to the disciples, but then they ultimately lie about how much they're bringing and keep some for themselves. And that lie and that greed ultimately cost them their lives. And so it's a very disturbing story that at the very least should generate some sense of sincerity and the seriousness with which we need to consider generosity and honesty amongst God's people. But, but it then transitions in chapter 5 to kind of another summary statement of the power and the effectiveness of the church especially in the course of healing, that people, even the sick and the lame, were coming out on the streets in hopes that just Peter's shadow would fall on them so that they would be healed. And so with all this momentum and all this success and notoriety, it tells us that the the chief priests and the elders and the leaders uh, in Jerusalem that day were growing very jealous. And so they arrest the apostles and they throw them in prison. And that night, uh, an angel comes and miraculously sets them free. And tells them for the next day to go into the temple courts and continue preaching. And so the next day, the chief priests and the elders, they show up and they're confused when they find that the cells are empty. And then they hear that the preaching is going on in the temple courts. And so once again, they rally these men together. They rally the apostles and they begin to to question them, saying, why do you keep teaching in this name? You have filled Jerusalem with this teaching and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. That statement in and of itself could be the message today. You have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. Have we? Have we filled our city with the teaching that Jesus is the Messiah? Have we filled our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our schools, our friendships with the teaching of Jesus Christ? That's what the early church had done. But it was coming at a cost, and it was coming now at the face of persecution. So the apostles continue to say, we're not going to stop. And so enraged, the, these chief priests and elders consider uh, executing them. And they have this debate. And one of the, the people among them, Gamaliel, I don't really know the best way to pronounce it, but he, he makes this argument and says, listen, if these guys are, are under their own motivation, eventually their followers are going to be dispersed. But if this is of God, you're going to find yourself not fighting men, but fighting God. And so he persuades them to relent. And so instead of executing them, they flog them. Right? They have them whipped and lashed on their backs, and, and then they once again instruct them not to preach in this name. And at the end of chapter 5, we get this incredible statement that it says the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
and it didn't stop them. They met this persecution with joy, and they met it with continued resolve. As it says, day after day, they went to the temple courts and from house to house, teaching that Jesus was the Messiah. That's how they responded to persecution. And so chapter 6 unfolds, and you see the momentum of the church, and now they're feeling the weight of responsibility. We're told of this, this division that starts to emerge between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews because uh, these widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Again, so much that could be unpacked in that one description in and of itself. But, but what you see is the apostles respond and say, we need to stay committed to prayer and to the ministry and proclamation of God's word, but let's appoint some others that can take care of these responsibilities. This is where we get the idea of deacons and other leaders. And so they, they lay hands on and they appoint seven other men who begin to take on that responsibility. We're introduced to people like Stephen and Philip who become central characters in the next couple of chapters and passages. And so as we are introduced to these people, Stephen in chapter 6 is arrested and seized, and now all these false accusations are being brought against Stephen. So we see that they're no longer just targeting Peter, they're no longer just targeting the apostles, they're, they're starting to target all these other leaders as well, and all these false accusations are brought against Stephen, and they're waiting to see how he's going to respond, and that leads you to chapter 7, where you get this lengthy speech from Stephen. And it sounds similar to a little bit of what Peter has done earlier in the book of Acts as he recounts the story of God's people. He harkens back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Solomon. And his main theme is this. Is there not a prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute? Right? And they persecuted those that foretold the coming of the righteous one. And so now you have betrayed and murdered him. And that causes their fury to erupt. And when he says that he looks and he sees Jesus at the hand of God, they rush at him, they drag him out, and they stone him. And it tells us that witnesses are laying coats at the feet of this man named Saul who approves of his killing. And the last words we get from Stephen are emblematic of Jesus when he commits his spirit to his creator and prays a prayer that God would forgive the sins of those that are hurting him. And that is what leads us to chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick up in chapter 8, starting with the second sentence of verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. And so this passage, these eight verses at the beginning of chapter 8, to me, give us a great insight to the seriousness and the realities of persecution, as well as our response to it. Okay, and so the first thing that I want us to see is that persecution is an inevitable reality of the church. There was great persecution that broke out. And we know it was immediate. It was almost as if like the death of Stephen was, was the final thing that broke the dam of the rushing waters of persecution. It, it's not like we had to wait for word to spread. On that day, the mob continued in their anger. And persecution broke out amongst the church. And it almost creates this juxtaposition, right? We get this description of Saul who is going house to house and pulling out men and women and putting them in prison. 
versus what we saw in chapter 5, the resolve of the apostles that were going house to house preaching the name of Jesus. What we see is that the momentum of the church was met with the resistance of persecution. It was an inevitable reality. And it should take us back to the words of Jesus himself, right, who in John chapter 15 tells his followers, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And that's the reality that we have to face. That is, that is the mark of the church. We are not called to a Jesus that's gonna act like some genie in a bottle and grant us our wishes and give us a life of ease and comfort. The invitation is take up your cross. That is the mark of the church. And it is a reality that exists even today. You heard some of the statistics that Caroline referenced earlier. Let me break those numbers down for you. Every day, on average, 11 brothers and sisters will lose their lives because of their faith. 11. Every day, because of their faith. And we know that that persecution can extend beyond just death, but it is a reality that it continues even today. It is the mark of the church. And so part of what we need to do is have the maturity to understand how to view this life. If you come to Jesus thinking that life is just going to be easy and that the road ahead for the believer is, is filled with all this ease and comfort, then you've misread the scriptures, right? What it, we have to acknowledge is that this world is going to resist this gospel and it's going to be met with persecution. And we have to embrace that and we have to know how to react against it appropriately. Now, what is often coupled with persecution is scattering, right? Did you see that? They were scattered. They were forced out of their homes, right? That was something that in that moment, they were not able to feel safety in returning to their very own homes. And there was a scattering that took them to Judea and Samaria. Now, that's a really interesting description, isn't it? And it should take you back to Acts 1.8, which is a famous missions verse that often gets quoted in a missions emphasis sort of month. Right, when Jesus speaks to the early followers and he tells them before he ascends into heaven, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it's such a captivating text. And you kind of want to envision the early church hearing those words and saying, well, we need to do that. You know what we should do? We should get a committee. And we should figure out how can we engage Judea and Samaria. Let's get some demographic studies. Let's figure out some plans and some re This is how we'll engage over here. This is how we'll engage over here. And that's not at all how it happened. What happened was they filled Jerusalem with the teaching. And then persecution broke out. And they were forced from their homes. That's what took the gospel to Judea and Samaria. Let me say this as simply as I can. The gospel moved through the mouths of refugees. And I'm not making a political statement, I'm making a biblical one, right? That this is how God often works. He took Joseph being sold into slavery to provide for his people in the land of Egypt. He uses the exile. He uses persecution. And when those folks are scattered, it allows them to then carry this word. That, that's, God moves even in the midst of hardship. And so when we think about this, when you and I think about that reality, we need to recognize that that is something that is constantly coupled with persecution. If you look at the statistics from UNHCR, United Nations of High Commission of Refugees, right, this is a global organization that helps track this sort of displacement. Now, they don't, they don't limit their research to just Christians, but they talk about it worldwide. 
and this is still a reality, in places where there's war and there's persecution, we can see globally around 70.8 million people displaced from their homes. And of those that are officially considered refugees today, uh, roughly half are under the age of 18. Every two seconds, somebody's forced out of their home. Can you imagine that if your presence here today would put you at risk of not being able to go home, that you would leave here today and, and recognize that your home is no longer safe and all you could do for you and your family was to flee with just what you wore on your back, with no assurances of safety and convenience and comfort anywhere else. That often accompanies persecution, displacement from their homes. And that's how God got this gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. So at the very least, when we hear these things, we shouldn't make it political. We shouldn't make it about some sort of legislation or policy. We should at least be able to respond in empathy to the point that if we do have people that stand on this platform and say, yes, there are seven different languages spoken in our school, and there are children dealing with severe trauma because they have been displaced from their homes, at the very least, we should empathize and respond with love and care because that's exactly how the church got started through people who had gone through similar things. So we see great persecution, we see a great scattering. And so, so how then are we called to respond to these sorts of things? Well, there's some great indicators here in this text. The first one is easy to miss, and it's a call to mourn and lament. You see it in verse two. After the death of Stephen, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply. It's easy for us to read this passage, and as William James Jennings refers, it's easy for us to rush past the tragedy of Stephen's death and secure for him the glory that he deserves. But what we do when we rush past it is we miss this simple description of the power of mourning. It's an insight once again that though the church had found this new hope in Christ, though they had found a new purpose and a new joy, there was still spaces and seasons to mourn. There were places to grieve over death's intrusion into life. Stephen's death should not have occurred, and so they wept for him. They mourned for him. And so when we think about our lives and we think about the persecuted church and we think about 11 brothers and sisters that could lose their life today, our first response is to mourn, to grieve. And we struggle with that sometimes, don't we? I mean, a lot of times we feel like church needs to be the place where we can just pretend like everything's fine. We put on that smile and we, we keep things private and we, we just don't open up as much and we don't really know how to mourn. And a lot of times it's because I think we're fearful of what it means to mourn. We know that it's painful to deal with grief and sorrow, and so we just push it aside so we can avoid that pain. I'm not going to acknowledge death's intrusion into my life. Or maybe we're fearful of how it's going to be perceived, that we're going to come across as weak or we're going to come across as, as insincere or doubting our faith. And so we don't really know how to mourn well, but make no mistake, that is the response to the gospel of persecution. Right, that is what we do. When we respond with mourning, we become a church that shows us we should grieve over death. We should grieve over death's intrusion into our lives because death is not what God intended. So the better capable we are to stop and grieve and mourn, the better capable we are to point to the hope that is found in the gospel. There needs to be a time and a space 
for mourning. But I also believe when we look at the, the realities of persecution and what we see here and what we'll see as testimonies around the world is that this should also inspire us. Right? Because what we see is that though they were persecuted and though they were scattered, they didn't grow silent. Did you see that transition? For those that were scattered, they preached wherever they went. <laughs> it didn't stop them. They just followed the example. Jesus did not sp stop speaking of who he was. Peter did not stop speaking of this gospel. The apostles didn't stop speaking. The early church didn't stop speaking. Have you? Have we? Think of their resolve. Think of their commitment. You couldn't silence them. There is no room for silence amongst the body of believers. And I'll confess to you, it's one of my personal fears of how I'm going to have to try to give an account before my creator of all the times that I grew silent. Why didn't I keep sharing or speaking? Well, God, I, I was worried it would be a little awkward or offensive. You know, we were really busy that week. We had a lot of activities, and I was tired. So we just didn't have time to invite people over. I didn't have time to go visit them. All, all the different excuses that I might offer that will pale in comparison to those who were facing the threat of losing their own lives and didn't grow silent. Right? They should inspire us because what we see for those who have counted the cost is they continue to speak with great boldness. And then we see the results of the gospel, right? You see it through a testimony here of Philip. He, he goes down to Samaria and he continues to preach. This is like all the different accounts that we have earlier in Acts. He's preaching, but he's also meeting needs. He's performing signs. People are being healed. And so what happens? Great joy fills the city. And this is the paradox of the gospel. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of displacement, there's still joy. And we see this over and over again told throughout the scriptures, right? That, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, right? That the disciples, they considered it joy. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy for suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus Christ. And here you see Philip going and interrupting in a sense of joy amongst the city and those people that got to hear this message. And why is that? Why is it that joy often accompanies this mourning and this hardship and this pain? And part of it is found in one of my favorite passages in Hebrews chapter 10. I love this text. To me, this is one of the most uh, compelling and inspiring texts in the book of Hebrews. And the author is writing to the church, and in chapter 10, he says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. Right, so right after you had decided to follow Jesus. Remember that, that beginning and how that looked for you? Well, right after you received Christ, you endured in a great conflict full of suffering that's what it looked like for you in your early days you remember that you didn't just get to have a, a nice progression into the faith it wasn't all laid out for you know what met you right around the corner was a great conflict full of suffering sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated so even if it wasn't directed at you you stood you still stood shoulder to shoulder by those who were also treated in such a way you suffered along with those in prison, and here it is, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away 
your confidence, for it will be richly rewarded. That's the secret of joy in the face of hardship. Joy in the midst of persecution is to have this resolve and to have this faith to know that you have something greater. You have something that lasts. You have Jesus Christ. And we must not fear that which can harm the body when we have found the Savior who has restored the soul. And that gives us joy in the face of all seasons and circumstances. So it's a remarkable text that gives us an insight to both the realities of persecution and how do we respond within it and the hope for joy that as a result, we don't grow timid. We don't grow silent. We don't grow fearful. We don't throw away our confidence, but we maintain strength. We maintain courage. We maintain confidence for the sake of the gospel because we know we have something greater. And that's how we should be inspired by the realities of a day that is often hard to truly embrace and understand the significance of persecution. Father God, we pray for our brothers and sisters that cherish that grace in ways that is hard for us to comprehend. God, that you would provide a sense of comfort and peace to them today. And in some mystery in some capacity, God, give them the assurance that they're not alone, that you're with them, and so are we. God, I pray that you would burden our hearts to continue to remember them in our prayers, not just today, and not just once a year, but consistently and regularly. God, I pray that we would learn from them, that we would learn in a way that allows us to once again be emboldened and to truly break out of any sort of complacency or apathy that sometimes can set in to our own hearts and our own practices and allows us to champion this grace with courage, with boldness, with love, sincerity, and generosity. God, that we would follow in the footsteps of those who built this church through the power of your spirit, through the hope of this gospel, God, that we would find joy even in the face of resistance. Because we know, God, each and every day we have something better. We have something that lasts. We have you. And you're everything that our hearts desire. May that be something that all of our brothers and sisters around the world feel and experience today so that collectively we can bring you the praise and glory you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.